0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space.
1: That just was a very powerful story, but also a reminder that you really have no, we have no idea what the stories are that are all around us. We have no idea what extraordinary things people have been through. And so the generosity of him telling me that story yeah that was really what stuck with me is you just it could right be at arm's length it might even be somebody that you've known for 20 years there's the stories are everywhere and we have no idea until we
0: ask i am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean hi i'm kathy sullivan and i'm an explorer exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are, spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, An active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. I am so excited to visit with the guest that's joining us today. Jenny Kingsley is an explorer of people and their stories in places most of us have never heard of. I've had the good fortune of visiting a few of those places with her and getting to know them just a wee tiny bit. She's a National Geographic Explorer, field correspondent for Lynn Blatt Expeditions, and a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Her book, Paddle North, the story of a 54-day canoe trek across the Canadian Arctic, won the National Book Award back in 2015. She's also produced award-winning radio documentaries that have aired internationally. Bottom line, Jenny's a person who believes in the power of personal stories, which just happens to be the central premise of this podcast as well. So welcome, Jenny. It's a delight to have you with me. Thank you so much. So you and I got to know each other back couple of years ago on a delightful expedition in the far north, Baffin Island, Greenland, Canadian and Greenlandic Arctic. So I know a little bit about your work, but I'd love to start back earlier in time and get you to tell me a little bit about the young Jenny Kingsley, where she grew up, a bit about her family, and what some of your earliest memories and sense of early influences is. Well,
1: I grew up uh, where I am right now, which is Ottawa, Canada. And my parents met here. Uh, my grandfather was a high school teacher here. Um, my And actually, my father's parents lived just two blocks away from where I'm sitting now. I grew up in a house a block away from where I'm sitting now. And uh, my partner, Tobias, and I now live here uh, where I'm sitting now. So we have a history of, I suppose, almost a century in this exact neighborhood. Wow. And yet you became the global roamer. I Well, I did. Although, you know, my family, because of the way my family was and how I grew up, my parents split up when I was eight years old. And so for me, that meant that I started living between three different houses from an early age. So even though I was entirely in Ottawa and often in the exact same neighborhood, I lived mostly with my mom and then part-time with my dad and also part-time with my grandmother. So although I do have roots here, I also traveled in a way. From a very early age, and um, often had a bag and was living out of a bag and was living in different houses. And of course, different houses have different rules. And I would say one of my most important early influences, and certainly one of my most important influences overall, is my grandmother. Hmm. And she is someone who came out of middle school to Canada and never really traveled much. Where was she from? She was from England. Uh, Wolverhampton in England and uh, her father died when she was young she had three siblings and uh, her mother came to Canada as a widow and set up here and she met my grandfather at the Chateau Laurier which is a big hotel in downtown Ottawa he was a cook and she was a cashier (laughs) but she was uh, I think one of the most grounded people that I've ever met And because I lived with her and there were all kinds of changes going on in our family, uh, things at her house were always stable and always just such a haven for me as a kid. Uh, So I take her memory with me everywhere.
0: And if I recall correctly, you told me once she gave you your very first journal, was that sort of part of helping you stay grounded and work through what must have been some of the emotional challenges of a, a triangular childhood? Yeah, I like that triangular childhood. Yeah, and that is excellent memory, Kathy. Yeah, she gave me my first
1: diary. It was one of those little page a day ones with the little lock, mm-hmm. you know, the tiny oh, yeah. lock on the side. And she never said much about it except take notes. She always just said take notes, and she herself took notes. And in fact, my aunt just finished transcribing all of the notebooks from her entire life. Oh my goodness! Her diary was was truly notes. I mean, sometimes she would just write you know, so-and-so came to visit and then nothing else for a month or six months or sometimes she would write every few days. My kind of journaling. Well, and that I would say is something that I have really taken into my life as a writer and journalist and something that I always recommend to others as well is don't get bogged down with the idea that you have to do it perfectly or completely. Any word that you write down, you will thank yourself for later. Hmm. And that definitely came from my granny.
0: How interesting. So have you ever gone back and read some of your very early journals? Were they, were they what happened today notes like your grannies? or did you start developing more of a writing habit through that journaling?
1: Yeah, I think I actually, I didn't follow the advice that I now give. I think as a young person <laughs> I felt very much like, oh, I have to write everything I wrote, did today. What did I do? It has to all go in there. I have to have every day. You shouldn't have any gaps. Um, but I think that perfectionism is something that I'm getting much better at letting <laughs> go of as an adult. But yeah, it was very kind of humdrum. But the thing that was that I, even though I started journaling, I think when I was eight years old, I rarely did it at home. It was always something I did when I traveled. You know, I did a road trip with my mom when I was really young. I would go visit my grandparents. I would always write when I was away from home and much less when I was at home. And that's actually been a lifelong habit. I always write when I'm on the road and very little journaling when I'm at home.
0: Take us forward then from your young eight-year-old self. You stayed in Ottawa, obviously schooled there, went off to university. Were those obvious expectations of your family, or inspirations that attracted you to go to university and strike out in a different direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of school, I did well academically, but I would, I did not do particularly well socially in school. So some of the things you've talked about as well, like reading a lot as a young person, um, books were absolutely an important like critical companion for me. I'm an only child. So those years were very people that I've never met, which is, I know, something that you've talked about. And I stayed in Ottawa for high school. And then I chose a university that nobody from my high school was going to. And I went there
0: and that was the University of Guelph. Which just for people who don't know, Canada is it's west of Toronto. So it's a fair bit west of Ottawa, but still in Ontario.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's perfect. It was like kind of too far to come home for the weekend, but not too far for, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas. And I really wanted to turn over a new leaf. I studied biology and English in university. And it was right out of university that I started working as a guide. Um, I started working in park with for Parks Canada out in the Rockies and just kind of branched off from there.
0: Well, I'm curious how that inspiration to start guiding happened. Um, How outdoorsy was your childhood? And what, uh, I mean, Guelph is a very different setting than Ottawa. Ottawa is a cosmopolitan national capital. Guelph is a, well, back then in particular, really kind of lovely rural Southern Ontario farmland on the edge of the lake. So where did that influence to head to the outdoors come from? Well, I think
1: that came from, from my family, even the granny, my granny, my, um, paternal grandmother I was talking about before actually both my grandmothers were very much into gardening and so that was kind of a lot of our outdoor life was plants and being in the backyard but my family was also both my parents and particularly my mother's family really into the outdoors and particularly canoeing so loved flat water canoeing love those sort of cedar canvas canoes and so that was a part of my childhood I think you know Yeah, both of my parents loved to hike and paddle. We had a cabin, cottage that we would go to. And I think, you know, I studied science because I think when I was in high school, it was like you were kind of supposed to. I sort of felt like I was supposed to study science, (laughs) even though my interests were like, I, I was in drama, I was in music, I was always reading and writing. But there was this idea, and I don't know what it's like now for high school students, but it was like, you must keep your doors open, and in order to do that, you must study science." Good advice. I did, love, I did love the outdoors, and I studied biology, but I think the reason I started as a guide was because I wasn't a scientist. Ah. Guiding was about communication. It was about storytelling. It was about connections, about being with people, about being out there. And yes. It's good to have a foundation in science in order to do that, especially when it's in the natural history realm. But looking back on it now, I think that must have been the reason. It's like I I did a little bit of science, like field science, which is kind of like a non-I was definitely a non-scientist, I think, from the beginning.
0: Well, I don't know about that. Exploring the High Arctic with you, your your knowledge obtained either through your academics or through your life experience, but your your knowledge of the natural world is as Pretty much as good as any scientist I think I've ever met. And certainly your knowledge of the biological world is vastly better than this geologist's understanding of it. So you know well done you. <laughs> I, I suppose it's just like anything, right? You you do learn
1: about about what you love, but I think, yeah, the lens for me was about like learning in order to share it, learning in order to be with people. And later, as I sort of transformed more into journalism, listening in order to learn and then. It
0: was a good start on the path, I think. So you're guiding in the Rockies is a summer job, I would imagine, not year-round, or is that wrong? No, that's right. Yeah, it was a summer, it was a summer
1: job. And then I got a job in the winter, which was like to do this kind of experimental outdoor education outreach, like theater program. So we did some theater about the national parks as well but yeah it was always really seasonal jobs and uh and then i remember one day i was leaving i had a job in jasper national park so that's in alberta just right on the continental divide and uh, i was leaving was like went into the office to say goodbye to everyone the phone rang my supervisor picked up the phone and she said this is an old friend of mine and he's wondering he's looking for guides he's looking for people to go to a fly-in lodge in british columbia that's changing from like a fishing lodge to an ecotourism lodge to teach people about grizzly bears and like do you want to do that and so i literally hitchhiked in the opposite direction i was planning to go (laughs) i already had my backpack i was planning to go east and take the bus all the way across canada to get back to ontario and instead i like hitched to the bus station i went west and went all the way to the coast and spent the next like several years again seasonal work but from early spring until fall hanging out with grizzly bears in one particular estuary on the British Columbia coast. What's the craziest bear encounter you ever had? I think they mostly always had to do with people, you know, like, because people, of course, are fascinated by bears and and want to take pictures. I think it was probably asking a Japanese, making a Japanese film (laughs) crew leave leave like $100,000 worth of equipment in the forest to just... (laughs) (laughs) right there that they hadn't seen well we hadn't seen and then I saw it and uh, we quickly walked away and left everything there
0: they were more dismayed about that than the bear I think did they get to go back and collect it or do you do you know what the fate is of that gear <laughs> uh, I think
1: it was fine the bear wasn't too interested it was a, a female but yeah I remember just you know that that voice that you have in well I'm sure you've used it many times like when something really could really happen people just know in your tone of voice that this is not yeah a moment to trifle with you even though in those days you know I was half the age of most of the people that I was guiding but it was a kind of do this now yeah going over here
0: yeah it, 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 that's sort of you know a, a switch on the command presence instantaneously it is that something that they train you about in guide when you're getting ready to go guiding in places with polar bears and grizzly bears? Because you you could very well need it for just that kind of circumstance. That's interesting, you know, because I think we spend most of our time learning
1: how to avoid those situations and explaining to
0: people how likely they are to get in those situations. And being very cordial and congenial to the guests. And then, you know, Jekyll and Hyde suddenly. Right. <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I suppose the calm maybe comes with
1: practice. That's one thing I definitely learned from spending a lot of time because we would do a lot of work like in the estuary, in small boats, sometimes in kayaks, but also on foot. And of course, since then I've worked in the Arctic, but in the temperate rainforest, sight lines are very different right yeah. often you can not see much you can't see at all and um so I think doing that over and over and over again really does help bring calm until you can sort of trust yourself to be calm when you need to be calm but then of course I don't you don't really know do you until it something no. actually happens yeah that's true the only time that's happened for me with a polar bear it just sort of was not a very close encounter but that Like, we just need to get out of here and everybody needs to listen to me. I think everybody can sense that you're, you know, you're serious. You just, everybody just needs to follow the instructions.
0: Plus when you're guiding in the Arctic, you're armed and no one's going to mess with any guide that has a rifle slung over their shoulder, right? You you have a way to enforce that order. (laughs) If need be. If need be. You spent several years, three or so years doing that kind of seasonal work. And where is that in the timeframe relative to uh, Paddle North towards really like moving more fully into being a writer, being a journalist? Yeah, it was kind of at the
1: same time. So I was starting guiding in the Rockies and on the coast. And then 1999, my best friend and I decided would like to go on a canoe trip where you weren't always worrying about the beginning or the end? Like it was long enough that it had a great big long middle and you could just live while paddling or could you? We didn't know, you know, what, what would it be like to try to get into this rhythm? So we went in on a 40 day canoe trip, just the two of us in Ontario. And then I think when you're loving wilderness paddling and interested in nature and wanting these kinds of adventures, the Canadian North is just such an exciting and wonderful place to go. And so then in 2002 and again in 2005, we did these long trips. One was 46 days, one was 54 days up on some of these fantastic rivers. So the trip that the book Paddle North is based on happened in 2005. The book came out in 2014. So that was really when I was, um, and I had no intention of writing a book about that trip. It was just do the trip. Yeah, it was just do the trip. Canoeing was always something that I kept in the personal sphere. Like we never looked for funding or sponsorships or had any media projects or ideas. It was like, we just wanted to have that experience. Just your space. And learn and not see people. I wasn't too interested in people back then. (laughs) So... The reason that I ended up riding Paddle North was because that particular trip was something that just wouldn't really leave me, if that makes sense. It just I kept thinking about it. It it just kind of wouldn't lie down after I
0: got home. What were you doing when you got home? Had you gone back to a job or what was I doing? That's a good question.
1: I think I was still doing seasonal jobs. I was I was guiding. Um, I was working for a conservation organization in British Columbia called Raincoast. I've had a few different attempts over my life to work in like an office environment. I've given up on that entirely now, but I did do, I was kind of, I loved that organization. I learned a lot there. So yeah, I was kind of doing bits and pieces, I think. And then when I thought, you know what, I really want to write a book about this, I went back to school and I did a master's of fine arts in writing and the purpose of that program, it was the first year they'd offered graduate writing at the University of Victoria, which is in British Columbia. And the idea was to write some kind of manager. Like, I thought, I am never going to do this if I don't get help to do it. Give myself some kind of a structure and some kind of help and mentorship, I will never do this. Because I think there are, apparently, there are writers out there who will, oh yeah, you should read the novel that's in my nightstand. Like people who write for fun, they're prolific, they write, I mean, I'm just not, I'm not that writer. I need the structure. I need deadlines. I need to know that it's going to a reader eventually. And so I went back to school and I did a master's in writing. Wow.
0: Can you, t- you know, people always ask me, gee, you've done these deep sea dives and you've flown in space, which do you love best? And I always weasel and waffle and say, I love the fact that I didn't have to pick either or it's the only one I got. <laughs> you have the twin passions of you know nature and the outdoors and writing and Can you, which of your children do you love best? Well, I guess I'm going to have to take a
1: page out of your book on that one because one of the many things that I've learned during the pandemic is the balance of opposing forces. Like the balance of those opposing interests is really what makes both of them work and what makes them two different things that I love. So, because I have just come, And I'm continuing at the moment to spend all of my time at home, a lot of time with writing, a lot of time with the computer. And although I've been able to catch up on certain ideas and projects um, over the past year, I need both. And I'm in a wonderful position that I can have been able to have both and will hopefully be able to have that again. But yeah, reflecting on the experiences and writing about them, I mean, that's in order to share them. I can't say that I find, always find much joy in the daily practice of writing. I think perhaps other writers feel that way too, right? It's- It's hard. It's a difficult yeah. endeavor, um, at least for me. So yeah, it's like, I, I mean, I think of it as maybe inhaling and exhaling or something. So like you kind of need both.
0: I want to come back to the pandemic a little later, but let's stay with Paddle North and, and that experience for a while. You said two things in Paddle North that I find fascinating and I would love to hear you reflect on more. Uh, The first one is that you're sort of drawn to places where you feel both small and strong. Yeah, I think
1: that's um,
0: the North for me,
1: and which is, of course, interesting and complicated by the fact that I'm not
0: from the North. Well, wait. Now, when you say the North for listeners who aren't Canadian. And, and I mean, that's a real concept, of, a very distinct, mm. vivid concept to most Canadians, but I think not at all, probably to many other listeners. So tell us a little bit more about the North. I mean, your national anthem speaks of the true North strong and free. It's, you know, it's vivid. How should we understand that? Different things to different people. I mean, for some people, we would say, oh, we're going up
1: north for the weekend, and that could mean like your cottage, an hour drive north of the city. I guess, well, in the context of Paddle North and Paddling the Back River, which is a very long river that flows through Nunavut, which is our furthest northeastern territory in Canada, it's a place where you feel insignificant. You are insignificant, but also have to plumb the depths of your own strength and just be able to rely on yourself. And I think the reason that I wanted to write Paddle North or felt that I needed to do that was because I think when I had set out this idea, a very constructed idea of wilderness and what it was, and oh, I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to push myself. Like I was very much in that kind of ideology at that point in my life and Paddle North, like paddling the back river, showed me that I had actually built an idea of what challenge was which was very different from real challenge like when the actual challenge goes outside the bounds of the thing that you wanted to do in your spare time because it's actually way more difficult and more scary (laughs) and it sort of goes from the idea of like here I go to challenge myself and learn about myself and you realize just like wow that was such a flimsy constructed idea because when at least for me you know that particular trip went beyond that It went further than someone who's decided, I'm gonna go on a canoe trip and pack my own food and it's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be great. And then it got really hard (laughs) and it got a lot harder than I thought and a lot harder than things I had done before. And I guess those ideas have played a lot into the work that I've done since and the work that I do now in terms of being an outsider. At that point in my life, being a person that felt she could just go wherever you know, as a Southern Canadian, earlier in my life, I was taught that, you know, this is my land. I didn't grow up with the idea that this is Indigenous land. This is land that was stolen from people. This is land that belongs to others. This is land that that is home to people that I had not met, that people that I did not know about. Um, and so in that way as well, Paddle North was a real turning point in my life, because as much as I was already in the North and learning about the North and talking about it, and even guiding, and, you know, was sort of a part of my identity. I knew so little about it. I still do, but I didn't even know anyone who lived in the North. I had no relationships with people there, and it had never occurred to me to even think in that way.
0: Yeah, it was the empty place. You, It was nature empty, and you paddled through it was probably their construct, right? You think, well, yeah, you'll just go to this wilderness place, and you can go when you want, and you can do what you want there. So that brings me nicely to the second concept in Paddle North that I'd like to hear you reflect on some. And that's what is wilderness and what is wildness? And what is the relationship between those two? Or is there one? Yeah. Suppose now I think so
1: much about like, what are these ideas that we value that we like project onto space that we project, not your space. <laughs> you kind of saying <laughs> all of that too, perhaps. But like the, the, these ideas of things that we value that we then sort of paint a place with, which is very different from like going to a place without an idea of what it is, as much as that's even possible, and just trying to actually listen and learn and observe. I used to think there was more of a difference between wilderness and wildness maybe than I do now. I think now I would say maybe there are two different ways of expressing similar ideas and something that is often really valued particularly in my experience by urban people and I'm an urban person but you know like what does that really mean because when you start visiting people or talking to people like who live in these so-called wild places it all kind of
0: falls apart hmm. I think hmm. fascinating so 2000- 2000 sufficiently confusing yeah, well, they're complex. I mean, wilderness, at least as I can conceive it now, wilderness to me has a physical dimension. Wildness doesn't have to have a physical dimension, right? I mean, just think about how we even use the word. Isn't that wild? It can be all sorts of things that mm-hmm. uh, I think I tend to use the word to signal something beyond my ability to understand it, something beyond Any of the constructs of my life, whereas you know, wilderness is a sort of untouched, largely untouched by hand of man kind of place. But it's a physical space. It gets very, very metaphysical very quickly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I guess, I guess, like from my perspective now, I think that's sort of exactly it. Like that, sometimes we will name a place a wilderness because a wilderness is about something that we value, and yet the word itself can attempt to empty it of people when in fact there are people there and there are people who live there because it's their land and it's their home and they've always been there. And yet we can somehow try to use language to like displace them. And that is not right in my view. And it's certainly an impulse that I absolutely
0: grew up having. Well, it's certainly a salient notion for the circumpolar Arctic whether you're talking about Canada or Greenland or Iceland or Svalbard e- even Norway Sweden and the north of Russia and and that pivots me i guess or the circumpolar north is what you focus on in your your fabulous project meet the north you say on your website about that that the project got its direction from the people of the north but i'm curious about its origin did it flow from the experience of paddle north and and somewhere in between Paddle North and Meet the North, you connect with both National Geographic and Lindblad. Walk me through that. Yeah,
1: I think the, the origin started with the writing of Paddle North, which was very much wrapped up in ideas of wilderness, and then at the same time, this realization that seems like so totally obvious now was like, I don't actually know anybody who lives there, and yet here I am writing a book about the North, and Um, I had opportunity to go to this project, a a university project called Deshinta in the Northwest Territories and talking with the students there. I mean, they just absolutely called me out on this. It was a place for Dene youth. Dene being one of the northern tribes in Canada? Yeah, being an indigenous peoples of the north. And uh, yeah, so like after I started working on this, um, thankfully, you know, people started
0: calling me out on it. What did they say when they called you out? I mean, what 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 was the, what was the clash of concepts that they hauled you up short on? Well, I think it was first of all, yeah, like this is a very common thing. We know Southern people
1: like you who come up here to recreate. What's interesting about that? Hmm. And secondly, just to show how much blindness I had about home about home places within my own country, where people live, how people use the land the fact that these dots that we put on the map really kind of make no sense in terms of how people use the land. Like it sort of tells us that populations are centralized when in fact people use enormous swaths of land. Just the fact that there's no town there doesn't mean that it's not somebody's home area. Yeah, so I just started and I thought I'd written this book and then I quickly just kind of wanted to almost like start to debunk my own book that I had just written. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Not a recipe for commercial success, but that's all right. Or to maybe just go into this other.
1: (laughs) I thought, well, what would happen if I went on a reporting mission? If I went as a journalist, but without any story ideas, like what are some of the ways that we can mess with this knowledge production, like mess with the way, not just of telling a story, but actually finding a story. How do we find a story? And um, I just got really curious about, well, what would happen if I went without story ideas and asked for recommendations and investigated, well, would people be interested in talking about, you know, the things that they thought were important or choosing the topics, choosing the sources, would anybody accept that invitation? I'd started working with Lindblad again. I did one contract with them, with Lindblad Expeditions in 2014, and it all kind of aligned with the book and this trip and so on and I got an invitation from the CEO at the time Sven Lindblad to
0: go to New York to help plan an itinerary for one of the arctic trips. Was this about the time that they were starting to think ahead about the the itineraries that would go into the the Russian Far East? It was I think before that they were thinking
1: about like where if it was really going to be north like Ellesmere Island, northern part of Greenland, you know, where would we go? And they had a Coast Guard captain in the room and a very experienced expedition leader, both Canadians and me. Cool. So what am I doing here? <laughs> and first of all, I remember I said, did anybody bring a map? They were like, <laughs> well, I have a map, so we could actually use a map to have this conversation. And so we ended up spending the day doing color-coded push pins in this map until we came up with an itinerary which became a trip that they called the epic 80
0: trip which i just we just did together yeah, yeah. so what when you when you're picking places in something like that it means are you thinking geology are you thinking again maybe just a little digression high latitude regions polar regions are so unfamiliar to so many people and maybe just to be clear the southern hemisphere antarctica that's penguins and research stations the North, the Arctic, has no penguins, but has been inhabited by by people for what Jenny, more than six thousand years. So you have penguins and no resident people, only visitors in the South, and you have no penguins but long-standing civilizations in the North, and plus a very different history of exploration of Western exploration. So when you were doing these pushpins, were you thinking about here's a great place to see some? Remnants of native culture or a current town or the geology or the biology, or what what was going into those pushpins?
1: Yeah, it was kind of all of that. And so I was there, and you know everyone these other people had ideas, and particularly the coast guard captain, I mean he had been so many different places. And so I was sort of there thinking, first of all, why am I even here? Like <laughs> I th- I suppose we do have those moments, right? where a, maybe maybe you're at a new step in your career, but also, I would say, that tendency to undervalue ourselves, I think, particularly as women, sometimes being yeah. in a room of men and they're going, oh, this and this and this. But yeah, the pushpins was exactly that. It was like, okay, green will be for beautiful natural places. You know, red will be for archaeology. We were kind of making it up as we went along. And I was kind of putting that part together. And then towards the end of the day, kind of could look at the map and go, yeah, okay. It seems like there would be a really great route along this
0: path of pushpins. Did you seize that moment to talk with Sven about your idea of going to meet people? Well, I didn't even have the
1: idea then. That day after the meeting, Sven said to me, if you had a reasonable magic wand and you were going to stick around my company for a couple of years, what would you create? Ooh, can I have that invitation? I was stunned. And he said, yeah, I'm going to, I just, I'll be back in five minutes. And so I don't really remember what I said that day. At that point, you know, it was my first book. It had just come out. I really wanted to stay with storytelling. It was a huge effort to put out a book and a first book in particular. And I thought, gosh, there are so many things in terms of expedition leaders and itineraries and working on the ships that was exciting. I thought, you know what, I really want to stay with storytelling. And of course, Lindblad has a partnership with National Geographic. I thought, I, I went away. I don't, again, I don't remember what I said that day, but... I did go back and think about it and come back a couple of months later with a proposal um, for this project that I called Meet the North and the idea of a sponsored journalist. And they gave me the chance to try it for one year, which turned into five years and (laughs) ended with the beginning of the, or I should say was suspended as it had to be with the beginning of the pandemic, but it became a three year long person to person journey through the Arctic to six of the eight Arctic nations. And then we turned went a little on a different course, a couple of years on some islands in the South Pacific. And then the last assignment that I did was the final removal of the landmines in the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic. So three years focused on the North and then a couple of other years in different places, always not only gathering stories, but like
0: messing with the storytelling process uh, as much as I could. So I want to go back to when you delivered that proposal, what could you see? You know, what were you able to imagine and lay out in that proposal? What was your thought about the where and how to start? And then and then these things always morph over time. So I'm just so fascinated and can't understand. What were you able to see as a starting point? And you know, what was it like the first community you went to? Was it a cold start had you any kind of introduction had you ever been there before did you just walk around town until someone agreed to talk with you i mean how do you do that yeah exactly well i think that my like pitch was pretty smooth
1: like i was like this is going to be person to person it'll be spontaneous and that'll be part of what makes it exciting and you know we can use social media to roll it out in real time and so on and so on meanwhile i Am no longer, but was very, very scared of talking to strangers. You are seriously no longer that scared. I am seriously no longer that. But at that time, that f- just filled me with anxiety. Of course, I didn't tell them that part. And also <laughs> i all know how it would work. Like it seems sort of like it would make sense. Sure, you just go from one person to the next, and it unfolds, and we're in this real time. But the reality was was much different. It was pretty easy to decide where to go because we did dovetail it with where the ship, the National Geographic Explorer, was going to be. You know, it was already in winter. It made sense. Okay, we'll go in the spring. The ship is going to Svalbard. So why don't you start there? I had never been there. I had never been to Norway. I did a sort of week on the ship first to just see the area and kind of be trained a little bit to work on board as a guide. And then I went to the community of Longyearbyen, which is, I think, less than 2,000 people I'll
0: not be right. Small former coal mining town, the largest, not quite the only settlement in Svalbard, but the, the largest. The largest. Where everyone everyone carries a weapon because polar bears will wander into town.
1: Yeah, and it's very far north. It's, it's near 78 degrees north. Yeah. And of course, the North Pole is 90, so it's not too far. It's very far north. So what happened during that first week on the ship was like, I accidentally recruited a photographer, this guy from Oregon named Eric Guth. And we had met once before, like several years before and not really seen each other since. And uh, he's like, Oh, what are you up to? What are you up to? You know, he's doing photography, showed me some pictures. I talk about what I've been doing. I'm kind of doing some journalism. And he volunteered to come with me. He said, well, wouldn't it be good if you had Someone to take photographs of like this idea that you're about to try. And I mean, little did we know that that was going to turn into five years of traveling together,
0: (laughs) all six of these Arctic countries to the South Pacific, to the Falklands. Wow. So the ship pulls into Longyearbyen, and you and Eric get off, backpacks slung over your backs, rifle on one shoulder. Rifle on one shoulder, yeah. And then the ship that brought you there from the comfortable places of home, the ship that's been your home for a week casts off her lines and sets back out to sea. You know, I've had moments like that getting off a research ship at bizarre places and and my ship leaves. And it's I found it a a really strange kind of unsettling experience for a couple of moments. What, What was that like as you watched the explorers sail out of the port and looked at Eric and said, Okay, kid, it's us.
1: Yeah. I mean, I
0: was so nervous. Like I was so,
1: like, I think on the surface I had hopefully maintained like a veneer of confidence, but I was terrified. Like I was really scared to meet people. I mean, I was basically signing myself up for at a minimum of one year of just cold calls. Wow. (laughs) Walk up to people, get a phone number, call them, go to their house, knock on the door. I don't think anything gave me more social anxiety than that at that time in my life. I mean, even as a kid, like if I would say, Oh mom, what, you know, we have a treat. Could we have a pizza? Could we order a pizza? And, you know, single mom, only child, sometimes she would say, yeah, okay, we can have a pizza, but like you need to call and order it. And we, I mean, we probably wouldn't have pizza. Like (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't call in a pizza order. (laughs) Um, So I mean, what I had done the week before was I, I met, I used the bus driver that had been oh. like the driver of our tour bus. Like I met him. He seemed kind of, kind of interesting person. Yeah, I remember he had these like really blue eyes and really greasy hair and didn't really seem to engage in anything. And I sort of started talking to him. He seemed like a kind of a socially awkward person. And I guess I related to myself that way as well. I was like, well, why don't I just start with him? And so I did have a phone number that I was going to call him when I got back to town. And since then it kind of has evolved, right? It's like, we also want to make sure that at least somebody wants us to be there. So that somebody wants us to be in the place before we go there, that they know that we're coming, that we've been invited and that we have a place to stay. But I didn't have that when I started in Longyearbyen. And I remember it was like the first day talking to him sort of on the bus, like guests were there and it's like, I'm a writer. Uh, And I'm like coming back and I'm looking for a place to stay. And like, can I have your phone number? It was so awkward. It was like the worst, most unclear. Like it was almost sounded like a pickup line. Like it was just, (laughs) but I got bitter as time went on. And he was great. Like he met us, we met people. We ended up going to this choir concert. In one of the old abandoned mining buildings towards the end of the year we met miners we met people who had grown up there and it's something that I truly believe I think is what allows me to keep doing what i'm doing is that. If you're clear about what you're doing and there's a clear invitation something that people can say yes or no to that when people do say yes. I think listening to someone's story really can be a gift. Like, how often does somebody show up in your life and say, I'm just so interested in you? Let's talk, like our not even talk. Like I'm just here, I'm here to listen. And I've grown to love the listening part. And I think that it can be a gift that storytelling and and journalism doesn't have to be an extractive industry. And figuring out what the ground rules are to make that free and open is an ongoing process. I'm sure I'll be working on for the rest of my life. But um,
0: those core beliefs really started developing in that first week in Longyearbyen. It's interesting that you touched on ground rules because I was thinking along similar lines that the work you've been doing as a, a documenter of people's lives, a conveyor of their stories to other people in other parts of the world, you know, that could have dimensions of, they could have voyeuristic dimensions. It's partly, you know, it's also partly anthropologist and partly journalist and maybe impossible to avoid in some dimension becoming a commentator. And those all have really different moral and ethical and social you know, obligations and concepts around them. You wrestle with that a lot or w- would you agree With that characterization or am I over, over over-imagining?
1: No, I mean, I do, I do wrestle with it. I think sometimes I wrestle with it. It can be paralyzing, which I also like is not helpful to anyone. You know, if, if the questions that you have just lead to a kind of paralysis or stop you from taking any action, even if the action is like choosing non-action, right? Choosing to stop, to let go. I do find it complicated. Certainly, I mean, as we've laid out in this interview, like a white woman from Ottawa, from Southern Canada, and I'm going and working in communities that are not my own most of the time. And there's a really important conversation happening about whether that should even happen anymore, right? This is tied to exploration. This is tied to colonialism. This is tied to our ideas of just like going around the world and then tied to exploration. But I don't think it's that simple, right? So because it's not that simple, it's still possible, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's like, I set out on this journey wondering, well, is there even a place for an outside journalist anymore? You know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I think that there still is. Other people would disagree, I think. But I suppose it's also having met enough people who, at least in the personal sense, I feel like have agreed and have wanted us to be there, have thanked us for being there. You know, that we've found a way through those dynamics is definitely not perfect. But I mean, I still believe in it.
0: Well, you've made one-to-one relationships and you know one-to-one commitments or agreements of mutual interest and mutual trust and confidence. And I hope that's always fair, that we can still meet each other. Well, that's the part of it too, right? It's like also
1: the the complexity and the ethics, but then also like there's such a joy in meeting each other. How can we lift that up at the same time that we're like working through the other stuff? So it's been a fantastic privilege. It's been such a privilege and honor of my life and something that I will continue to work on and change and evolve and yet trying to stay with those connections. Like, you know, the first, the first time I ever went away from home, I, well, I went to like Brownie camp for one night. And then the first time that I ever went away from home after that, I went to Thailand without my parents when I was 11 years old for five weeks.
0: Wait, how did, who did you, you, you
1: didn't do that one solo, I hope. (laughs) No, I did not do that one solo. I did that with an organization called Children's International Summer Villages. It was me and three other kids, two girls and two boys from Canada, with a leader who was probably in her early 20s. And then we went to a camp in northern Thailand with these similar delegations two boys and two girls, 11 years old, from like eight different countries around the world. And we stayed in this camp. It was over Christmas, it was like for the month, sort of spanning December and January. In terms of my personal in Canada social life at that age, it was like a terrible moment like I was really rejected, I was like socially rejected by the girls who had been my friends when I came home in that way it was very traumatic. But the time that we were at the camp when we were there and we were together. It's something because it was so difficult for me socially when I came home and I was in grade seven at the time was something that it was very private for me for a long time. It was just sort of like an experience that kind of stayed in the photo album and stayed in my heart and mind. But now I think about that all the time. Like to me, that is the formative that was the formative experience. What do you remember about it? You know, my parents were shipping me off to Thailand. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't know how popular they were with their friends for doing that. Yeah, it was kind of the formative experience for me because mostly we didn't speak the same language. Some of the other kids spoke like some English, but mostly we didn't have a common language and we just spent a month together
0: and it was so fun. And we became such good friends. What were you doing in the camp? Was it just sort of summer campish childhood kinds of things? Was there a, a service dimension of, you know, fixing trails, right? Like, I think it was considered like
1: a peace camp. It okay. was a cultural camp. The idea was that, and I don't know, but like, I think the idea of this particular organization is that when you're 11 years old, you're old enough to sort of know a bit about the world, to understand different countries and that there are different countries and cultures and that we live on this planet and it's a big place. But at least their idea is that you're still too young to have been exposed to a lot of the prejudice and negative stereotyping that maybe comes to you later in your life. Now, I'm sure all of that is debatable, but the idea was to just go there. And it was in Thailand, but it wasn't about being in Thailand. It was about being together. And we did, I don't know, activities and singing and crafts. And we had a tuck shop and we had a swimming pool and we just. What's a tuck shop? Oh, like a where you can buy, you know, you could get a bit of spending money and go buy a candy or ah, like buy a chocolate bar or something. Ah, cool. Yeah, I I, I think back, I'm, and I'm actually, I'm writing another book at the moment. And uh, that camp, strangely, really came up and figures quite centrally in the ideas about the work that I'm doing now. Are you still in touch with any of the campers from back then? I'm not. I was. I was for many years afterwards. Yeah, and at the moment, I'm not.
0: Well, I'd like to take us back to the North and switch gears a little bit. The people that you've met as you've gone through the Meet the North project, Russia, Canada, Norway, Denmark, Greenland, all around the whole circle, they live in a part of the world that generates virtually none of the excess carbon dioxide that's accumulating in our atmosphere. And yet that same part of the world is seeing some of the earliest most rapid and, and very consequential impacts. And I'm curious if that topic or how climate maybe came up or changes in their environment, how did that, was that part of what they talked with you about that they raised or not putting the question very well, but that contrast of of being such a low impact part of the world in terms of CO2 emissions and yet such a high consequence part of the world in terms of what's happening I'm wondering how that came through in your conversations with people, and and if it came up through explicitly, what they said to you, how they expressed it, how they perceived it. Right. I think a couple of things come to mind.
1: Number one, remember I started this in 2015, and I think the way that we in the South talk about climate change has changed a lot since then, but I would say at that time, my experience of the climate change conversation when I was in Southern Canada was very much like it was still something that we pushed into the future somewhat. And whereas, and, you know, going to the North, going to the Arctic it was like, this is a present problem. Like this is a now problem. This is a now consequence. We're not talking about building dikes in a city in some future time. We're not talking about, you know, reinsulating our homes or whatever those conversations were in terms of the direct impact on people further South. It was like, this is something that's now And it's not just now, like it's actually something that people had been already living with for
0: a long time. How did it manifest in the communities that you visited with and in the lives of the people you were talking with? I mean, I guess that comes to the second part I was going to say is that
1: because I would as best I could ask people like, hey, what do you want to talk about? Who do you think I should meet? Where do you think we should go? I have, in fact, a couple of times been accused of avoiding climate change in my work because It's not the thing that people always wanna talk about. And I think that to me is also a very important lesson that is in fact related to climate change, right? Is like, because you live in a part of the world that's highly impacted by climate change, it doesn't make your life about that. And actually learning about the rest of your life shows the rest of us, I hope, what's at stake. Like, what is at stake here? this is what life is, this is the passion of this person, this is the interest, this is the new business, this is the family, this is the history. And sure, we did also meet people who were studying ice thickness, you know, we went out and learned about some of the technologies that are being used for community research related to that. But to me, it was actually the indirect fact of, you know, us from the South looking North, we often want to know and to talk about climate change Because it's so important when we go up there, but then I would find why I said, well, what do you want to talk about? Do you think I should meet? There were all kinds of things because life is rich and diverse and people have diverse interests. And so to me, it became like, wow, like, look at, look at really what's at stake. When we look at this from a cultural perspective, there's just so much at stake when you think about people's lives and how much
0: they're being altered. Tell me more about the alterations that either they were telling you about or that you witnessed in this three-year journey. There are sea walls
1: in communities in Alaska that are already in place. There are communities, not just in the north, but also places that we visited in the South Pacific that are either planning for or voting or contemplating relocation of the entire community. Of course, there's more accidents out on the sea ice. The sea ice is more unpredictable it's thinner the seasons are changing you know these are people who are true experts like they are the experts in ice in sea ice and so it's becoming unpredictable for the people on earth who have the most knowledge on this subject
0: well and whose food supply often depends on the ice and the 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 rhythmic timing through the seasons that their communities have known for generations that's also changing when can you hunt? When can you eat? When will the walrus or the seals or the whales be nearby? Because you know, the ocean's their refrigerator and their grocery store.
1: And I think when you think about like the, the people who have the most knowledge on Earth of a certain topic, whether it's sea ice or something else, when the foundation of that begins to change and shift, that to me is just, for me, a very powerful indicator of the the amount of change and the amount of unpredictability. Because when I stand at the side of the sea ice, I mean, what I've been guiding in the North for like a few years, I mean, I stand on the sea ice. What do I see? I mean, I see some things, if I'm with guests, we might talk about it. But I mean, I cannot even conceptualize what it is to know about sea ice in that way. Like that is not, a. I cannot, I could spend the rest of my life up North and I would never even touch that in terms of that level of understanding. So to know that that's changing in a way, just to me, that's like a very profound measure of the change.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So another little pivot. Here we are, maybe in the beginning of the end of a pandemic. We hope so. As you said at the start of our talk, this is the longest spell that you've been at home since, since you were very, very young. What has the pandemic been like for you? How did you you get through it? And what have you been devoting your attention to since you can't devote it to booking airplane tickets and guiding in exotic locations? I guess
1: the first thing I want to say, like, I really loved all of the people in the pandemic who kept saying, don't feel that you need to turn a pandemic into an opportunity. Don't feel that you need to, like, do your creative best For me, the beginning of the pandemic, probably like the first six months of the pandemic was a crisis. And I think it's important for me to say that. And hopefully that will be part of my life story as I go on. Because I think when we have the privilege of doing things that we love in life, it's easy to skip over those parts or like you, you, hopefully if you're lucky, you get a chance to look back on them right? say, Oh, that was a tough patch. It was a tough patch. Emotionally, financially, all of it like you know my job was suspended all of my plans were canceled i was facing down a summer my my partner tobias he was still working which was great and he's also a musician he was working on the weekend so i was home for the first time in a decade in the summer in an apartment with no air conditioning not allowed to see anyone and he was working 7 days a week and at that time i felt like everything that i had been working towards actually just piled into a brick wall all of this flow, momentum, what I thought was flow, it just, it just hits the dam. And that was how I felt at the time. I don't feel that anymore, but it was very difficult. I hope that other people who had some kind of difficult, like emotional financial experience like that will also share it because I think it's very, that was the reality for a lot of people. And that was definitely the reality for me. And then once I kind of got my feet back under me a little bit, I thought, you know what, I actually had about, five years but i probably had six years worth of work that i'd been trying to do in five years in a way um so i said you know what when i get to the one year anniversary of having my previous life suspended i want to have finished all the things because that's one thing for me about storytelling is depending on how you do it but for me it's an agreement it's also an agreement like if you go and you meet someone, you talk to them, and you say, this is what I'm here to do, and this is how I want to share it, and I'm
0: hoping to get this published, or whatever, it's an agreement. It's like, I got to do that. It's yeah. a promise. You can't just let it languish in your file folder. You've got to deliver And even
1: when your life changes, or there's a crisis, or, you know, even prior to the crisis, sometimes, you know, I would be let down by a publication. They would promise me something, and they would break their promise to me. Well, that, that how do I not pass that on? It's like to say, oh, well, they you know they let me down, so I'm going to let you down. Well, that doesn't work. So I've spent from then until about now, actually, finishing all that stuff. And um, I had the time and energy, and eventually I had the creative energy as well to do that. And so whatever comes next for me, which I'm still not sure what that will be, I will be able to step into it with a sense of completion and a recognition that without the time, So for me going forward, there has to be a lesson about planning because I took on more than I could actually do and I needed the time to finish it and I needed the time to rest and um, because of the fact that I was able to stay home, you could say, oh, I was stuck at home, but also I was not in a position where I was out facing COVID every day, like so many hundreds of millions of people around the world in order to work, in order to live, if they work in any kind of essential service. Um, I realized that while I believe in what I do, and I think it's important, it may be storytelling. I guess it is essential. I do believe that it's essential in the bigger sense, but in the sense of like a global emergency for one year, I was able to do what we were asked to do, which is stay home and stay away from people.
0: Do you have a sense yet or a hope yet for what becomes of, is there such a thing as travel journalism in the post-pandemic world, should it be reshaped? Mm, Yeah. I must be thinking about that a good bit, even though the crystal ball is probably very, very cloudy still.
1: It is still cloudy. And also being in Canada, right, we're in a different situation. Um, I know probably a lot of your audience is in the United States, and we have a different public health system. We have different planning. We have different interval between vaccines. We have, it's a very, quite a different situation up here. So for the next little while, I will be at home. I'm increasingly interested in collaboration. To me, the storytelling, travel journalism, there's a lot more for me to learn there in terms of collaboration. I definitely grew up and I think have done a lot of things on my own. Like I kind of understand how to do things on my own and I want to get A lot better at meaningfully doing things with other people. So that's quite exciting. And I think there's some really often unexplored dimensions of storytelling there, or at least unexplored by me and unexplored by most people who have a byline, right? Like you have a story written by Jennifer Kingsley or written by whoever, you have a book written by you. Well, that's not really true to begin with because you didn't do it by yourself, even though your name is the only name there. So that I think would be quite good direction to go in for me.
0: Interesting. So you've managed to put a nice ribbon around the work that had been in your backlog. Are you already incubating something new for the future? I still have the book. The book from all of this is about half written as I'm speaking
1: to Ah. you. Um, I must say I'm not dreaming much beyond that. One of my habits is to think of something new before the thing is the other thing (laughs) is That would so, be how we get uh, overbooked. <laughs> yeah. so for now it's, it's really just about that. The follow through, I think like in some ways, for those of us in the world, whose countries are having a lot of like increasing number of vaccinated citizens. Uh, I think that actually this last little bit is going to require renewed commitment to just stay calm for me. Definitely stay calm, stay focused. I'm really trying not to think ahead too much. I've got one more big thing to do that's very important to me, so I'm going to stay focused on that as much as I can. Give us any hints of what that is? Well, it's basically this interview, the book. <laughs> <laughs> I am writing a book about this Meet the North journey.
0: and uh, I need a title, so if anyone has any suggestions. Can't wait to read it. If you need someone to read some proofs, so let me know. So, Jenny, one of the fun things I've done on many of these conversations is close with a little bit of a lightning round of just short-burst questions. Okay. You ready for that? Yes, I'm ready. And I conceived of most of these in the context of Meet the North, but you're welcome to take them wherever you want. What was the most unusual food you were served? Cold-boiled walrus and jellied whale salad. I think I need you to say that again.
1: (laughs) Unusual only for me, because these are delicious and common foods. Cold boiled
0: walrus and jellied whale salad. And where was this? Uh, in the Russian Far East. What's the oddest or most uncomfortable mode of transport you used? There are tracked vehicles
1: that they use in the Russian Far East that are like tanks, but you can... It's like a cross between an RV and a tank. People may live there, in there. If their job is to be the driver, then they might ha- that might also be their home. They have a bed in the back. Um, but yeah, it's like a steel track and there's some windows along the side. I've never been in an actual tank, but it definitely looks a lot like a tank, but with, with windows and like kind of a camper van tank.
0: And I imagine the ride is about as uncomfortable as a tank? It's extremely loud. <laughs> have you been in a tank? Not a
1: combat tank, no. Okay, because I would guess that, that if you're on cement or whatever, the track must be really loud. But in this case, you're on the tundra, which is not great for the tundra. So it's not the, so much the sound of the track on the tundra, it's more the sound of the engine. Ah.
0: You're pretty much just, the engine is among you inside. <laughs> <laughs> and so you mentioned the bunk in the back of the track vehicle. What, what's the actual weirdest place you ever slept well, the weirdest place I ever slept was in the back of a
1: school bus with a loaf of bread as a pillow, but that was back when my tree, <laughs> my, my tree planting days, sleeping on a fire hose. That was maybe the weirdest, but I think the most special place, well, there's been lots of really wonderful places to get a night's rest. But when we stayed with reindeer herders in Eastern Russia, we had our own tent, um, but I was not warm enough. And then they gave us reindeer skins, and I was still not warm enough. And so then they eventually invited us, invited me into their Yurunga, which is a circular tent, and they have a sleeping tent inside called a polug. And so I wouldn't say it's weird, it's wonderful. It's like a cube um, that's lined with reindeer fur. And there's a communal bed in the bottom. So everybody kind of sleeps. There's like a great big, long pillow that you put, you know, you've got your body inside in the night and that's your pillow. And then in the day you've got your body outside and you can kind of sit on the pillow that probably doesn't make any sense, but yeah, they finally invited me into the Yuranga and into the sleeping area called the Polog. and it was the most quiet, dark, warm, peaceful place I've maybe ever slept. It was like, finally got a great night's sleep. Wow. What's the most spectacular
0: sight that sticks with you?
1: So many, but I'm going to say when we visited Iceland and we went to this sheep roundup, we were invited back to a farm for supper. And then they said, well, why don't we go and have a walk around the backyard? And so we went in the backyard and through this field. And at the back of the field was this most spectacular canyon this rocky canyon with a stream at the bottom and a waterfall. And it was so lush and idyllic and gorgeous. And just the fact that that was their backyard and that was the place of their childhood memories just really stuck with me as such a beautiful, beautiful sight.
0: Wow. Love Iceland. <laughs> Is there one particular person whose story sticks with you the most?
1: I met a man named Elias Fleischer in Greenland. And again, this was cold calling. It was like just trying to meet people. And of course in Greenland, people speak Greenlandic. And if they have a second language, it's probably Danish. And so English is number three, if number three. And I met this guy on the dock and he spoke English and uh, he agreed to take me out fishing with him later in the afternoon. And so we went out in his little open fishing boat with an outboard engine, and he fishes very close to some of the big icebergs that come out of the Ilulusat fjord, which is in western Greenland. And he told me this story of the day that he'd been there uh, with his wife and son years before, and they'd been in a water taxi and their boat capsized, and everybody died, including his wife and his son right there in the place that he now goes back to fish. And for me, that just was a very powerful story, but also a reminder that you really have no, we have no idea what the stories are that are all around us. We have no idea what extraordinary things people have been through. And so the generosity of him telling me that story yeah, that was really what stuck with me is you just, it could write, be at arm's length. It might even be somebody that you've known for 20 years. There's just stories are everywhere and we have no idea
0: until we ask. Wow. So finally, if you could make everybody, if you had that most reasonable magic wand that Sven referred to back when, and you could make everyone on earth understand one thing about the Arctic, what would that one thing be?
1: The power of listening to people who live there.
0: That's brilliant. You're giving all of us who live at these moderate latitudes a wonderful opportunity to do some of that listening, Jenny, with the work you've done in Meet the North. Check it out on meetthenorth.com. Great stories, fascinating people, and I can't wait to have the book in my hand and hear even more of them. So, Jenny Kingsley. Thank you for sharing all the stories that you share with us through your radio and podcasts and written works. And thank you for sharing this hour with me. Well, thanks for your interest. It's just wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.